If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Numbers, chapter 15, as we take up our 32nd observation of the wilderness sojourn of the people of God in the Old Testament. We are reminded and we are assured that there is a sense in which we also are engaged in a wilderness sojourn. We are not in glory yet, that's obvious. We have not yet been glorified, that too is obvious. And therefore, for the believer, we are between justification and glorification. It is a process that we call what? Sanctification. Some of y'all should know all three of these categories uh, without even thought. Sanctification is what we're going through. Sanctification is what Israel is going through. And we are looking now at an aspect of the sanctifying work of God in the life of a people who just came out of another culture. And that culture, as we have been learning for months now in the in this, this wilderness sojourn meditation has a whole lot of control over their lives. And the message that I want to convey to you out of Numbers 15, 37 through 41 really elicited the last hymn that we considered, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, we will often sing hymns and fail to realize that they are the direct product of Scripture. And the Scripture never speaks in vain. I will assert to you as we get ready to drill down into the text that heaven or hell is the consequence of either turning to Christ and beholding his wonderful face or not. I will assert to you that men and women who make it to glory are such as have observed the face of Jesus Christ, which is the revelation of the invisible God. But how is that done? The Old Testament is a kind of catechizing system for those of us who are in the New Testament. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church has parallels, but the New Testament church has moved into advanced stages of their relationship with God in a way that is quite different from Israel the Old Testament church. Uh, Stephen called it the church in the wilderness, Acts chapter 6. But what do we learn from those things that were written aforetime, which are for our learning? One is, as I shared with you last week around the Sabbath day, is that Israel were given a number of catechizing signs. They were given a system of typology and symbolism that was overt and they were, it was obvious. It was something that was meant to be so prodigious that when people looked upon Israel, they saw in the sign language a message that was designed to point them somewhere else. Do you guys remember that? And so the Old Testament is frequently... Um, framed by externalism and exhibitionalism that would teach us something about greater redemptive realities. Here's a way to put it on a kind of uh, proximal and directional level. In the Old Testament, external outward things pointed to internal realities. In the Old Testament, things that were done in the physical were pointing to things that should be done in the spiritual. Okay, in the Old Testament, the patterns that were taking place by the children of Israel were for us to see 
much deeper, much more personal, much more profound applications in our own life. Does that make some sense? All right, so immediately frame your thoughts around how does what God just said to the children of Israel in this account apply to me because they are for our learning. Here's the title of our message as we get into it today. And you're going to have to think with me or you will be left behind, no pun intended. Here's the message. Arise, move and go. Your counselor is your covering. Your counselor is your covering. Now, the premise for God's word are always his promises. Whenever God speaks, he speaks inherently in terms of promises that he makes to us. Because God sees the end from the beginning and his language to us is always designed to help us move forward. So when God talks to you, the foundation upon which he speaks are always the promises of God. That's why the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ to the glory of God by us. When God speaks promises, he's speaking to you and I what his intentions are, what his purposes are. And we are compelled by those promises to follow God, are we not? Because we do believe that God doesn't lie, that he doesn't change or fail. If he said it, he will make it good. If he declared it, he'll bring it to pass. So when he says, follow me, I'm following on the premise of his what? Promises on the foundation of his promises. Promises are always the message that God is taking us somewhere and for a reason. And so when we talk about the promises of God, we're talking about the way in which God uses mechanisms and methodologies and training uh, devices to cultivate in you and me a confidence in God around his promises. We're talking about how God uses mechanisms, how he uses devices, how he uses uh, modes of expression in order to cultivate in us, in order to produce in us a hope in the verity and faithfulness of God's word. We need that, do we not? And the result is that the soul becomes confident in that whatever God says, God's good on that. Now, I want to I build that out a little bit as we drill down. So we're on the tarmac. We're headed out. When God gives promises, he very seldom says it only one time. He will repeat them over and over and over again in order to drill down into our thinking that God means for me to hear that because in the day of trouble, what I'm going to need is to remember the promises of God. So God is going to do that from different ways and different fashions and different modalities. And many times in the Old Testament, it was by signs. Did we learn last week that the reason that that man was killed for picking up sticks was not only because he was presumptuous, but he was defying a sign necessary for humanity to find rest in Jesus. And that was the big crime with that man. So we do understand signs matter, do they not? But they only matter to the degree that they point us in another direction. So before us, ladies and gentlemen, is another lesson on how God uses signs. The title again is, your counselor is your what? 
I could also say it like this. Your covering is your counsel. Because what this is about is a subject-object relationship between you and God. God is calling you to engage with him in a process of manifestation by which God is glorified in our obedience. So he will tell you to do something that may not make a whole lot of sense until you start participating by what we call the obedience of what? Faith. Israel is being called to an obedience of faith, are they not? And this one here is really catechismal. I've said that four times now. This is really uh, educational. This is really now didactic because this is going to be a weird symbolism that requires you to think in terms of a father-child, a parent-child relationship. And really what God is doing with Israel is what I want you to understand is mind control. So I want you to stay with me now. I want you to stay solid. Don't move. I want you to understand that God has to get a hold of your mind. He has to get a hold of your mind. If he doesn't, someone else will. That becomes obvious to us. So I want you to stay with me because as much as this sort of catechism looks bizarre and weird and obtuse, it is a fringy catechism, no pun intended. And with God, you will miss the essence if you fail to respect the fringes. And this is what God is going to teach Israel because God speaks to us in mysteries. And if you care about mysteries, then you got to press into them to understand their message. So here's what God is saying. He's saying to the children of Israel, I want to get a hold of your mind. This has to be a divine MK Ultra. So for, for the rest of you, you need to get a hold of that. Because what God knows is outside of Christ, your mind is controlled by somebody else. Stay with me. Because the reality is, is we will all really deceive ourselves into thinking we are free thinkers that we are free agents, that we can go hither and yon and we live in a vacuum. You don't. If you become sensitive to the reality that there are voices going on all the time, all around you, then you can become a little bit more persuaded that what I'm saying is true. You will be passively conditioned and catechized by your environment to think a certain kind of way. And it becomes even more formidable when your environment is intentionally seeking to control you and deceive you away from obedience to God. And so it's important for you to catch the lesson here. I love this because, again, this one here is right up on the heels of God dealing with a major rebellion at hierarchical levels. Chapter 16 is going to be about the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram against Moses and Aaron. And that one's going to be a big one that we have to deal with because this is about government usurping authority over God's authentic leadership in order to control the people to take them back to the place God is bringing them out. So here is what God is doing before we get there. He's taking all the men and women in Israel who are willing to be children. I told you about that, right? Except you become like a little child, you will never enter into the kingdom. So if you think you know everything, you're already undone. If you think you're mature and spiritually discerning and do not know whether or not you know who's teaching you, You're already undone. You're already deceived. 
Okay? Unless you become a little child with the kind of hunger and passion for God to speak to you in the way in which God speaks to us so that we can think God's thoughts after him, you're already deceived, which is the case for my country. There is an MK Ultra that's been going on in my country for many, many decades. And the assertion by the government is that the children are ours. And by the time we get through putting them in front of our optic, they will actually become transformed into the image of our mode and our intentions and our purposes. And that's where I am today in my culture. Let me see if I can drill down into this a little bit. Here's the first thing you and I need to know. It starts with the ears and the eyes way before it lodges in the heart and manifests itself in the hands. It starts with the ears and the eyes, does it not? It starts with the ears and the eyes way before it lodges in the heart and acts out in the hand. I mean, we do say, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Well, but it's not going to get to your heart until it enters into your ear. And until it's comprehended visually with your eyes, the ear gate and the eye gate becomes that initial mechanism for opening up to propositional truth on the outside of you. I'm going to give you something else to boot with this because your culture constantly sets up axioms and tells you things that if you're not discerning, you'll buy into all the time. Here's one. Here's one. Everybody knows the truth. That is not true. That is not true. That would be contradicting God's word. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, 1 John chapter 5, 18. In other words, humanity fundamentally is deceived until God reveals the truth to them. So if the whole world is saying everybody knows the truth, then God's a liar. Did y'all catch that? And yet you'll meet Christians all over the place that says you know the truth. Okay, so it's, it's really important to know. We talked about this last week. I want you to get it again. Here's another one that passes the ear gate and eye gate of many professing Christians who are really not committed to God's word. That's really what we're talking about today. Man is basically good. Man is not basically good. So Israel is like a baby who has been born out of Egypt. Egypt is the Exodus. You guys remember that? All right, for those of you who are new, let me teach you about your Bible. Genesis that's the first set of books in your Bible before Exodus. Is that true? Genesis 1 all the way to 50. Genesis is about the seed. The seed. Generations, our Genesis is seed. It teaches us at the beginning that God has a what? A seed. This is why nations are so big in the Genesis narrative. Because Jesus is the, and we are the, in him. So God teaches us how things begin and how they fall out. Exodus is about the deliverance. Here's the metaphor. The seed is in the womb of God's divine purpose in the book of Genesis, and it emerges as a baby nation out of the book of Exodus. Did y'all get that? Exodus. It's the Greek term ha-adas, which really means the way out. The way out. And so the Israelites came out of the womb of Egypt, did it not? Birthed as a nation led by Moses to go to their home in Palestine, which we are headed. So Israel is like a child, a baby. This is why God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go. So we can see Israel acting like a baby in the wilderness, can we not? It's not mature. It's not sound. It's not making right decisions. Neither do children. 
So what do you do with a child when you want that child to grow up right? You train him in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. So what God is doing right here is going to set up a mechanism by which Israel has to constantly exercise the regiment of being confronted with God's truth. Did that make some sense? The regiment of being confronted with God's truth. Now, this regiment is going to be a mechanism which is also going to serve as a firewall against the lies of the world. So I told you also that what we're dealing with is truth that comes from the outside that's negotiated by faith so that it takes residence on the inside. And when it takes residence on the inside, then there can be a transformational allegiance to that truth claim so that we can affirm our sonship before God. Did that make some sense? All right. So let me share it again with you. Truth doesn't start from the inside. It starts from the outside. Truth is with God. God is separated from us. He has to reveal himself to us. He has to communicate his truth claims to us in order for us to know anything that is right. That is the same relationship between parents and children, is it not? You don't expect your children the moment that they're born to know what's right. You have to train them. And as children of the living God, God has to do what? Train us. This is why you must be born again. This is why you must desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. This is why God expects at some point for you and I to grow up and to have our senses exercised, knowing the difference between good and evil. Am I making some sense? When I was a child, I spake as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Israel is in the middle of what we call childish things. And here they are. Notice with me in our text, because I just want this to come home for us. We'll make fuller application as we go. In chapter uh, uh, 15 of Numbers, notice what it says as we deal with this over in, in verse 38. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid, that means command them, that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generation. There's three things here. They were to be involved in a process of making their garments, which they were already wearing. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Peculiar and unique. And they were to replicate that from generation to generation. Did you get that on that historical level? Take your garments and put fringes on your garments. And you are to replicate this from generation to generation. Take your garments and put fringes on your garments. You're going to have garments already, but then do something. Enhance those garments with fringes. That's what he's saying. And I just want you to get that. So, again, I know that's interesting. It's kind of strange, but it's only strange because you and I don't really have a deep understanding of how God trains his children. But it's not strange if you're a parent. When your child comes into the world, that child comes into the world butt naked. Am I making some sense? And when you and I come into this world, we come into this world butt naked. And when we come into this world spiritually, we are butt naked spiritually. And you and I need to have somebody that care about us to clothe us. And then God trains us how to wear the garb that he clothes us with. And there are times in which he wants you to create a specialness of the garments that you wear to indicate whose you are and who you are. Am I making some sense? 
All right, so it's important for you to get this at the spiritual level because there are a lot of folks, they say they're children of God, but in my opinion, they're still walking butt naked. And that might be you, so we get to drill down into this lesson and find out, do we take our father seriously? Because this is what God is doing. This is what he's saying. Notice what he says in verse 38, the last part. And that they put upon the fringes of the border a ribbon of what? Right, so their garment was to be of a particular kind with a particular emphasis and a specific color. This was all the children of Israel as they made their way through the wilderness into the promised land. And this practice was to characterize itself all the way up to the day of Jesus. We're going to see that shortly. God means for how you dress to speak of who he is in relationship to you. Now, stay with me because some of you collapse right back into the symbol and not the substance. What God is talking about is the dress of your soul, the dress of your mind, the dress of your character, the dress of your walk. Not merely the garments that you wear. We already got that going on in our present day, and that's a fool's errand. I'm really jumping ahead. It's not the externality that really is true. It's the internal garb. This is what Jesus laid out himself, did he not? And you and I can fool men by our dress. But in reality, we can be naked in our soul. All right, but I'm going to deal with both of those because these, again, equivocating statements. We're learning that. Sometimes what we appear in our external dress does matter. I don't want nobody running around here butt naked. We're going to send you right on up to John George. And then they're going to put some clothes on you and you're going to complain about how tight they are. I want you to comprehend what I'm saying. It starts with the ears and the eyes before it lodges in the heart. The Bible is very clear that Israel was to cultivate the obedience of faith by an external exercise that is as intimate and as practical as one can get. There's nothing more intimate and practical than your clothing. Beyond that, it's the DNA in your body. Did that come home? There's nothing as intimate in terms of physical proximity than your clothing. Then your clothing should matter to you because it takes on a kind of conformity to your shape, to your tone, to your size. Clothing matters in terms of making you comfortable, uh, uh, complimenting you preparing you for the journey. Am I making some sense? Right, so you don't want to play this down. Clothing is something that God himself ordained from the beginning of time, right? There are clothing that are that is inappropriate. There is clothing that is uncomfortable. There is clothing that is distracting. There is clothing that is provocative. There is garments that really don't suit humanity. I'm making some sense. But that is not what I'm dealing with. You can make the application there. What I am talking about is clothing is designed to be an intimate mechanism of both educating you about you and educating others about you. How you dress will tell all kinds of people about who you are. All right, so it's important to get this. So this is why he told the children of Israel to do what he did. Now, again, we're taking carnal things, but they really have a spiritual application, do they not? 
That's where we're going here in a moment. That's where we're going. So let me see if I can build this out. I love the proposition. Your counselor is your covering. I love this because what God is stating to Israel is the kind of clothing you wear must teach you something about me. Did that come home? The kind of clothing you wear must keep you in constant contact with who I am in your life. That's what the fringes are about, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get there, okay? The fringes are a co-extension to the garment in order for the children of Israel to be constantly reminded of who the Lord is. Isn't that exactly what he said in verse 39? And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and do what? Remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. Do you see it? Right. So your garments should be counselors. They should be educators. They should be means by which you remember the Lord your God. And and this is why Israel as a child is now going to be trained by these things. Let me see if I can build this out. Point number one, God is the one that did what? God is the one that clothed them. If you don't know, men and women were born butt naked. Were they not? Genesis chapter one and two. Because of a fall and rebellion against God, their nakedness became internalized and they became self-conscious. Their self-consciousness was an evidence that they were separated from God and their separation from God created the kind of phobic anxiety and and depressing uh, maladies and pathologies that you and I are dealing with today. Separation from God will keep you afraid of everything. Separation from God will blind you to the only way out. Separation from God will uh, cause you to drown in a kind of, we've talked about it before, narcissism of self-focus, which doesn't actually help you. Being over preoccupied with yourself is one of the greatest dangers in the world. And it is exactly opposite of being a child, because when you are a child, you're not self-conscious in a dominant way. You, our kids just love to run around butt naked. Didn't they? You know, they, they, you put some clothes on our kids and they tear them off. And it's because they have no sense of self-value. And that's the way God had it with Adam and Eve in the beginning. Because it wasn't about them, it was about their relationship with God. And God himself had clothed them in his spirit, so they were free as naked men and women, and they weren't using their physical body as some kind of manipulative mechanism for perversion or distortion of reality. Did that make some sense? So our children can teach us something about innocency and beauty and simplicity If they're not perverted early on, which is what the enemy wants to do, this is why he gets at your kids even when they're in your belly. When you expose your kids to wrong teaching and wrong doctrine, they come out jacked up. I'm ahead of my message. I'll talk about that in a minute. Under point number one, God clothing means that clothing is something that God ordains because of the inadequacy of our nakedness. Our nakedness now is a distraction, is it not? 
So he clothed them, Genesis 3.21, two sub points as I go on. Our nakedness is addressed by God and he teaches us why we should wear garments. Remember, we're in the Genesis, we're in the seed, we're in the beginning, we're in the, we're in the uh, genesis of God's plan. Genesis 9, chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. You remember how that Noah, after coming out of the ark, he had built a vineyard, planted a vineyard, drank thereof, his indiscretion. He was in his tent, but he was in his tent, what? naked. All right. So don't build that out because I don't want you to be distracted. He wasn't out in the street naked. In the world, they wanted out in the street. What God says is if you're going to be naked, be naked in your tent. That makes sense because you got to be naked at some point. If you don't ever take your clothes off, don't come in this building because I know something going on. <laughs> and, and if you married, you got to take your clothes off at some point if you marry. Because you, I think, I'm not real sure. We can, we can talk, that, talk that through. I guess you can't have kids with clothes on. But ideally, the Bible speaks of nakedness as the peculiar privilege of a husband and wife, for which Leviticus 18 through 22 said, don't look on it. No incest, no endogamy. No perversion with your family. Y'all got that? So you put clothes on so we can engage with each other because your clothing is your covering. A healthy mind is not going to go past the garment. You train your society how to understand the veil of garments as a means of limiting any kind of speculation on the part of the mind of getting perverse, which is what Noah's son did. Noah's son Ham wasn't content with his daddy taking a nap in his own tent because he drank too much wine. He had to go in and see what's going on. And then he went out and engaged in the first pornographic media presentation. I told you that, haven't I? And yet he had two brothers, Japheth and Shem who refused to look on their father's nakedness. Now, they represent God's elect. They represent men and women who know the truth. They represent those who understand boundaries and categories. And what did those two brothers do? They took a garment and they went backwards. They took a sheet and walked backwards and they did what? Covered their father's nakedness. That's because love covers a multitude of what? That's how saints are supposed to act. That's how the people of God are supposed to act. What they did was say, hey, our brother really messed up. Our dad is in his tent. We're going to close his tent and leave him with God. Okay, it's extremely important for you to know that. This is where gossip comes in, distortion of facts, all kind of stuff. This is where your media comes in. This is where Hollywood comes. It's dreadful what is done in our society. Not only is God the one that clothes them, not only, not only does he call us to the same kind of pattern. If God clothes them, then we are called to clothe too. Our job is not to unclothe, it's to clothe. If you seek love, you clothe. If you hate people, you expose. Did that make some sense? Sub point B, our covering is his work. Do you agree with that? That's ipso facto. That's a, that's sort of just kind of a, a, a circling back. God is the one that clothed Adam and Eve. So the clothing is whose work? It's God's work. And yet if we take Genesis and run it all the way up to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, here's what God says about you and me. 
in his love for us. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 8 is all about the coming of Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to open the prison gates and so forth and so on. He has exchanged, you know, the uh, the, the uh, spirit of heaviness or the garments of heaviness with the spirit of, of joy and, and gladness and so forth. And here's what it says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. How come? My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Hallelujah. Do you see it? All right. You need to park it there if you don't know it experientially. Here comes God doing what Japheth and Ham, uh, Japheth and Shem did. He's coming to cover you. The goal of the gospel is to cover you. Not only to cover you, but to cover you with salvation. How powerful is that? Sister, what kind of garments you got on? These are called the garments of salvation. That means from the totality of all that I need, God covers me. He covers me in my mind. He covers me in my heart. He covers me in my actions. He covers me in my sleep. He covers me in my waking day. The totality of salvation on God's part to me is to cover me wherever I am. Cover me when I fall. Cover me when I stumble. Cover me when I think wrong. Cover me when I act wrong. Lord, cover me. This is what the cherub beam, the cherub beam are all about. The covering cherub. Did y'all get that? I could go deep into that. We don't have time. It's important for you to understand covering is what the true and the living God does. Satan loves to get you out on the plank and then make you naked. The true and the living God, his work is to cover. I love this. Listen to what he says. I will greatly rejoice for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom decked himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. And I've talked to you guys about this before. This is the co-mutual activity of the bride and the bridegroom getting themselves ready for that eschatological day when the world will know who God's elect are and the world will know who Jesus is because we're married to him. One day the curtains will be pulled back and we will be in the total nuptial dress of a glorious bride, and all of this is symbolic and speaks of what it means to be glorified together with him. God does this. Point number two, our covering speaks to us. Do you see it? Our covering is designed to speak to us. Again, we can go into this deeply. In your mind, you're thinking secular garments, But if you start from Genesis chapter three, where God covered Adam and Eve with coats of skin, those were tunics. And the Hebrew people knew what they were doing. Moses knew what he was doing when he wrote by inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. The tunic was a garment that started from the neck and went all the way down to the feet. In other words, it was a total covering of everything that should be covered, which 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 uh, which should be covered. And only left was the head and the feet. okay, and the hands. So everything else was covered. Your face is not to be covered because remember, the face is a representation of your character and your attitude, right? Like the Lord shines his face upon us. 
And God talked to Abraham face to face and talked to Moses face to face. And for you and I, we have fellowship with the Father through the Son face to face. For God calls the light to shine out of darkness and it has shined in our hearts to give us the glorious knowledge of the true and the living God in the face of Jesus. Is that right? And we're going to see in a moment, we behold his face and that's how we're changed. Not there yet, but I just want you to capture that. So there are a couple things under point number two I want you to get. Our covering does what? It speaks to us. What do you mean by that? Not only the material of the garment, which he's not addressing here. We would address this back in Exodus chapter 25 through 28, because the tunic that Adam wore is the same tunic that the priest wore. These are priestly garments. And the people were what wore what was called common plain garments. Even the priests wore common plain garments until they were called in to do ceremonial work. Did that make some sense? Then they would wear what are called the sacerdotal garments of the priesthood. And the sacerdotal garments of the priesthood would have fringes on them too. With all kinds of what we would call symbolic affirmations and projections into heaven. They would have pomegranates. They would have bells. They would have cherubim. Did did that make some sense? And other things that spoke to the glory of God that would be intrinsic in their going into the promised land so that the priest would wear garb that 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 would remind them of the promises of God to them, too, as they were working in the tabernacle. And when the people saw the priest, they would see the garb that the priests are wearing and they would see the tassels. That's what the fringes are, tassels. And they would see those tassels and they would be reminded of the significance of gold and silver and crimson and then blue. I could go deeply into the whole uh, ornate fashion of the priesthood garment, but they all speak of spiritual things because you and I are called to be a kingdom of what? Priests. So when God clothes us, he's calling you to the act of priesthood. He's saying you stand between God, God and the world. And you stand between God and the world in the glorious ornate dress that God puts on us. So that not only does the garment teach you, but it teaches them. Am I making some sense? So our dress metaphorically and spiritually speaking, should not only be an education for us, and it should be primarily, but it should give opportunity for other people to learn about God through us too. Why is your garment of such character? Why is it wool and not flax? Why is it not mixed with the flax? Why are we dealing with gold and blue and silver and crimson? Why not some other colors, magenta or whatever colors? And I could talk about that too. I shouldn't go into it, but I could. I could talk about why Israel was limited in their capacity for a color scheme, as well as the different materials for their garments in what is called the doctrine of consecration and separation. They were told not to mix the wool and the flax. They were told not to mix the the barley with, with the grains in different corners. They were told not to yoke an ox and an ass together in the same field, not because it couldn't be done, but because of what it would have pointed to in relationship to the pagan people of the world. I'm going there. Okay, Israel was told to do it a certain way to teach exclusivity to God. 
Every seed-bearing herb should bear fruit of its own kind. We are not to engage in indiscriminate hybriding, which is what our world is doing today. This is why they want to make adronomous men and women, adrogynous men and women. Y'all see what I'm saying? Yeah. Time to learn. Your covering is to speak to you. I love this. Your covering is to speak to you. In Isaiah, we talked about the celebratory element of the garments of salvation, did we not? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 30. I want to show you what Israel tried to do, for which God gave the infringement and the imperative that we're dealing with here in our text. I'm going to start in Isaiah 30. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Israel has always proven itself to be a mischievous child. Not the elect, but the stupid people in Israel. I was uh, asked the question last night, a Friday night, by a very prudent young man that's trying to get a handle on the doctrine of election. And and I told him the reason why people have a really difficult time with the doctrine of election is because people are deceived in thinking they're in control. That's the other area. You think you're in control. You're not in control. You need to acquiesce as to whether or not you are the servant of Christ or the servant of Satan, but you're the servant of one of them. Right. And then when somebody comes along and tell you your will is not absolutely free, you get all upset. Yeah, but I would just tell you to watch yourself for just one day and you will discover you are as not as free as you think you are. That's just one day that will teach you a slave to all kind of pathologies and and predicaments and and all kinds of patterns that you and I need extricating from. And we need God's help with it. Do we not? And I also am here to teach you that you don't see everything. You don't peer into the deep, deep uh, crevices of your own conscience. You don't have an omniscience to really know whether you are free or not. There are all kinds of undetectable influences that move you and I to the left and to the right. And we only know it later when God reveals it to us. Oh, no, I see everything. No, you don't. You don't see hardly anything. You have no idea of how the principalities and powers of this dark world have subconsciously been able to influence you and lean you in a certain direction. Not only psychologically, but neurologically, physiologically, epigenetically, and culturally as well. This is the science of our present world system. This is why they can ask kids today, so do you think you are a boy in a girl's body? All of this has been regimentally programmed by a whole lot of MK Ultra. So it's important for you to know that you need a deliverer. Help me think straight, Lord. It was for this reason the children of Israel would have fringes on their garments. And as we're going to see here in a moment, back in Exodus chapter 12, God said when they came out of Israel that they were to put the law as frontlets on their forehead and as bracelets on their wrists. I'm going there. Right. Because if it's on your forehead, you can't miss it. You're walking around with a consciousness of elements of Torah on your forehead. Right. That means you're forced to think about God's law, understand who he is over against who you are over against the world. And when you raise your right hand, you will see once again a band wrapped around your hand with phylacteries on it to tell you your will is subordinate to the will of God. Not my will, but thine be done. Now, these are all external things that's supposed to do what? Transition into our heart so that we don't have to wear them outwardly. This is New Testament theology, is it not? 
So before we get there, I want you to see what he says. Woe to the rebellious children, said the Lord. He's talking to Israel. That take counsel. There it is. Your counselors are your what? Your counselors are your what? That take counsel. Listen now. But not of me. This is children of Israel. This is them going to the horoscopes, to the Ouija boards, to the tarot cards, to all of the secular systems, all of the systems that hate God. Am I making some sense? Well, all of these mystical pagan sort of speculations and, and, and theories that are out there that drive you further and further from God. That's why I tell some of you who like to go into the rabbit hole, be careful that your soul is anchored to Jesus. So when you make a wrong turn, the Holy Ghost can pull you out of that hole. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me. Did you hear that's a woe? And that cover with a covering. So you see the council is a what? It's a covering. That take counsel, but not of me. And that cover with a covering, but not of my what? Whoa. So I told you how to do it. Old Testament points to the new. External things are representing internal things, right? Carnal things are representing what? The garment then has to be spiritual. You and I need to be covered by the spirit of the living God. That's the covering of God's elect. That's the covering of his sheep. That's why Christ died, is it not? To cover you substantially in the depths of your soul, in the totality of your person. So you cannot be penetrated or stolen or manipulated by deceivers of the world system. Right. It's really interesting, but not of my spirit, that they may do what? Add sin to sin. Look at that. Boy, that's a big optic. They're taking on different counsel, putting on a different covering in order that they might practice sin. That's exactly the antithesis to what God said in Numbers 15. You have fringes on your garments to remind you who the Lord is and that we would do all his commandments. Do y'all see that? So there are folks who put on forms of godliness, but deny the power thereof. There are folks who put on the form of religion and even in Christianity. I know that. Do you know that? They will call themselves Christians, but their whole doctrinal system is this secular world system. Everything going on in this secular world, they adopt, they embrace, they walk in, but they pretend to be covered by God. It's only in name, not in spirit. Important to get this under point number two, then, as we deal with our covering speaks to us. The text is clear. Look at what it goes on to say. Verse uh, three through four. I want to build this out and move on because God has a controversy with it. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your what? Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your what? Your trust in government will be your shame. Because see what Israel is doing is going back to the government of Egypt. As a hiding place, your trust in governmental systems that are secular in nature, man-made, demonically governed, that brought you into oppression, of which you're going back to, will be your shame. Why are they going back? Because they refuse to pay attention to the tassels. They refuse to understand that the garments were garments that God gave them to cover them. Am I making some sense? In effect, spiritually, what they did was take off God's covering, return to their nakedness and sought covering by Egypt. We saw that all through the Exodus account, have we not? Let's go back. 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 Our world is going back right now. 
Our world is, this is backwards. This ain't progressiveness. This is regression. So listen to what he's saying. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust and the trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your what? Are people confused today? And it's because they are walking in the shame of spiritual nakedness and ignorance of the righteousness of God. Look at the next verse. We got a long way to go, saints. For his princes, that is the uh, Egyptian princes, they were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. Verse five. I'll talk about that in a moment. They were all ashamed of the people that could not profit them. In other words, Israel went down to Egypt, found out that the Egyptians were worse than them. Okay, so so the city that Isaiah just talked about is a city where the uh, pharaohs and the princes and the rulers of uh, of Egypt would go down and have drunken Bacchalian parties. And when they ran down there to get help from these Egyptians, they found them laid waste, drunk, unable to help them. Am I making some sense? Reminds me of my government. I'm sorry. They were all ashamed of the people that could not profit them, nor being help, nor profit, but ashamed and a what? A reproach. Isn't that bad when you know you I'm going, I'm going to my, I'm going to my, I'm going, and then you get there and they can't help you at all. They're far more in bondage to the system than you are. I don't want to go into it any deeper than that. You understand the implications. All of our studies over the last three years have explicitly laid this out, have they not? Point number two, our covering speaks to us. I want you to get this. Go back to verse 38 because I want you to follow with me now on just the, the, the garment and the tassels. The garment and the tassels. The tassels are the fringes. A better translation would be the tassels because there is deep redemptive truth to come out of it. Speak unto the children of Israel. Bid them that they make unto them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generation and that they put upon the fringes the borders of a ribbon of blue. Make sure that your garments have have tassels on the ends of them. Now, in the Jewish culture, the tassels weren't necessarily all around them. Obviously, just like any culture, people will modify and make tassels all over the place. This was strictly for a purpose. It was said to be in the four corners of the garment. That means one on one end, one on the other, and then the same in the back as a four corner principle. All right. And those tassels were for Israel to actually exercise a mnemonic, a kind of a memory mechanism for remembering God's God's covenant. That's what uh, God is saying to them. And the color blue is significant as well. Sub point A, this is the way I want to get at it. It was designed to be what? It was designed to be noticed. In other words, the tassels were meant for you to notice your own garment and for other people to notice them. They were meant to be noticed. I love this. The way that Moses addresses this as well is back in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11 and 12. I'm going to come back here too. I'm going to, I know I'm laying out a lot of information, but I think you can handle this. Listen to what it says, Deuteronomy 20, 22, verse 11. Listen to what he said. You shall not wear a garment of diverse sorts. There it is. Of woolen and linen together. Keep your wool and your linen separated. There was a reason for that. Don't get weird and bizarre. I can tell you fundamentally this is an apologetic uh, against the cultural practices of the Egyptians. So I just want you to know, if you want a context, God is telling Israel, don't dress the way you did when you were in Egypt. There's a reason for it. 
right? When you mix the wool and the flax, you are saying that you can actually engage in hybrid sort of commingling, amalgamation without having consequences. But you see, the Egyptians, just like the Hindus, are engaged in this androgynous sort of uh, imagery of men and women and animals as well. Y'all know that, right? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Right. And so their mind is broken in the area of not keeping the order salutis. So they can mix an elephant with a man and a female with a horse and, and so forth and so on, because it's all part of one united, indifferentiated culture. That's what they're doing. They're saying that you and I are no different than the bugs, no different than the cows, no different. Y'all know this is the case. So what's emerging out of the mind of the Hindu is that these categories that God has set up are fictitious categories, very much like the postmodern irrationalists of our day, because they think that everything is merely a construct. Y'all got that. That means you can change it and modify it any kind of way you want to. So really today, our culture is much more like the Hindu than it is Christian. This is true. I talked about this in our old church 15 years ago. We're moving towards Hinduism because we're violating the categories. This is why in, in those Hindu cultures, you see a whole bunch of men looking like women. Am I making some sense? Because we are willing to hybrid the distinction of these specific God-given categories and think we can do it arbitrarily and it does not have consequences. Israel was to begin to change their dress pattern so that they would not incrementally go back to where? Egypt. Verse 12. Verse 12. Deuteronomy 22, uh, 13. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't want to go there yet. All right. So uh, I was under Deuteronomy 22, 11 and 12. And so now where I want you to go uh, briefly with me is uh, to Ezekiel chapter eight, three. In our text, the Hebrew term for the fringe or the tassel is only used four times in your Bible. And here's an interesting way in which it is used. It'll give you an idea of the form and shape of the tassel. This is Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is a prophet of the Lord, is he not? But he is also a priest of the Lord. Did you not know that? So priests were to wear special garments. They had to have certain ornate uh, garb in order to be distinguished from the common people. One thing that Ezekiel had, which many of the Jewish men would have had, was long hair with locks. Y'all got that? The locks, like Goldie locks. The locks are fringes. The fringes were on their body. You'll see it in Orthodox Judaism today. Fringes hanging down. Did y'all get that? It gets a little weird, but there you go. I'm just saying it's all over the place. Am I making some sense? Yeah, brothers, don't come in here with no fringes on. (laughs) Brothers, don't come in here with no fringes on. We're going to put you to sleep and you're going to be bald-headed when you come out of here. (laughs) Don't come in here with no fringes on. Not in this present cultural context. Okay, I don't care how much you try to remember the word of the Lord. That ain't the way to do it. We're cutting off all fringes on the part of men. Fringes are forbidden in here. There's another way for the word of the Lord to get in your heart. And it's not to have long hair like a woman, especially locks. <laughs> he, and he, this, I got to start at verse two, because this is the spirit of God working with Ezekiel to give him revelation. 
Ezekiel 8, 2, if you're still paying attention to me upstairs. Then I beheld and lo, a likeness of the appearance of fire from the appearance of his loins even downward. This is a description of the pre-incarnate Christ. And from his loins even upward, because this is anthropomorphical, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. That's what we saw in Ezekiel chapter one, when we saw a man sitting on the throne in heaven and fire running up and down his body. That is the pre-incarnate Hashim Yeshua Jesus. Y'all got that? Ezekiel had a common relationship with the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus now is about to take him by the spirit into a vision. Look at verse three now. Look at verse three. And he put forth the form of a what? That is anthropomorphic. So a hand comes out. That hand is the Lord Jesus. And he took me by a what? A fringe, a tassel, a lock of my head. Got it? Notice what he says. And the spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. Where was Ezekiel? He was in Babylon, the river Kibar, 800 miles away. And the spirit of God lifted him up as a trance. Me and my little brother was talking trance to let be recently. One of these days it'll happen. And, uh, and brought, him to, brought him to Jerusalem. So he's there in a vision, is he not? And what did God grab? His tassel. He grabbed his tassel. So Ezekiel is experiencing a transcendent revelation of God's will from the standpoint of his obedience as a priest to wear the garb and to engage in remembering the Lord, his God, represented in the fringes. Some of y'all will get that. See, because the process is really about an end and a goal. It's not about the, um, the tassel itself. It's what it represents. It's about it being a method by which you and I can be trained to remember the Lord our God. So in this context, we, uh, the translators translated that a lock of his hair. It would be like a bang, like the bangs that come down when women do their hair and leave two or three hanging in the front. You guys know that, right? I mean, back, I mean, back in the day, I don't know if they do it today, but Raise your hand if you ever did bangs where they came down. Now, Mario, keep your hand down. Keep Mario, Mario, keep your hand down. We don't know. We don't want to know what you did when you was in high school. Ladies, did y'all ever do bangs? All right, there you go, please. You thought you was cute. Y'all know that. And you wanted people to notice you. All right. That's all I'm saying. And I know Ezekiel is straight because he had a wife. That'll help you. Two implications and we'll move on. I think I got your attention now. Point number two, our covering speaks to us. It's designed, it's designed to speak. The tassel talks. You guys got that? The tassel talk. Why? Because in the tassel was to be embedded the commandments of God. For the Jewish people, it was 613 explicit imperatives given to them uh, uh, in Torah and Mispot for them to be reminded of God's will in their life. Y'all got that? I taught you that those 613 commandments were reduced, reduced down to two. Jesus made it clear. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a vertical command. And then your neighbor as yourself. Didn't I teach you that? The 10 commandments given to us by Moses are the 10 words were reduced to two words. Love God, love your neighbor. And then they were summed up in one word. And that word is Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So for us, the tassel is the tassel of truth. 
The fringe is the fringes of the word of God. Am I making some sense? You're using that to remember who the Lord God is in your life. That's what you're doing. You know how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119. I think it's uh, verse 49. This is our last year's verse. Remember the word unto your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort, right? And all my afflictions because your word is what, what? Comforts me. So you and I need a mechanism by which we remember God's word. Israel wasn't walking around the wilderness with a big old Bible. It was their garb. Because the garb represents intimacy. That which is personal. It has a subject object impact. It's the word from without coming in. And it's the word from within going out. Am I making some sense? I'll drill that down here in a little bit and show you how the New Testament is all on top of this. I'm just building a bridge between the old and the new for you. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Africa and I was on a plane with a bunch of Jewish brothers. We're headed to Africa. And I'm, I'm trying to get my Z's on. I'm trying to saw wood. It's about eight hours in, you know, I mean, a lot of hours. And I look up and then this brother is, and he had on his, him and another brother had on a full black suit. That's all they ever wore is black. They got the big old hat on, the big old brim. Am I making sense? First, I thought they were Amish. And then I saw the dread, I saw the locks come down. And then they went up to the bathroom door at a certain hour. And they said, I said, man, that's a weird way to get the word into your heart. It is. That's a weird way. But that's what they do. And they still do it today. They, that, that is a full body sort of mnemonic for them. Now, God's not calling you to that. Jesus is going to correct that in a minute. But I'm just showing you how because they reject the gospel, they're still stuck in the Old Testament system and they're operating out of those external things when the reality has come. Am I making some sense? It's important for you to get our covering does speak to us. But our covering is no more a physical covering, is it? For them, it is. So it's designed to be noticed. I love this. Uh, sub point B in point number two. It is the notice of what? Right. I love this. Notice what it says in Numbers 15, 38, part C. Here's what he said. When you put tassels on your garment, you cover your tassels in the color of what? Blue. Y'all got to be careful. Read it. Every word of God is pure. Try it in a furnace of fire seven times. Blue is no accident. Blue universally is always a symbol for heaven. Everywhere. Everywhere is a symbol for heaven. And so because it's the color blue, what they know is this word that they have received to practice in its catechism is from where? God gave it. God gave it. I love it. Psalm 119. It must be around verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled where? Is that true? But it should also be settled in our heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory, dwelling on the heart. Is that right? So it starts in heaven, but it ends up in my heart. Christ in you. This is where it must end up. If you're going to go there, it must come down here first, come get you, and then take you up there. 
If you and I are going to make it to heaven, we must know that truth does not originally and authentically reside in us. Truth is in its own dimension outside of us in the person of God. God is high and holy and separate from sinners. Certainly you and I are sinners. And how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people apart from a mediator who himself came down from heaven, accomplished eternal redemption, and then found a way by which his word can abide in our heart and take us to heaven where he is. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? All right, got a few more things to do with that. Uh, Lamid, I love that. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And if that's true, that's true about me. If God's word is in my heart and his word is also in heaven, then I'm in heaven where God is. I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. And if Christ is settled there, then I'm settled there too. It doesn't matter what goes on down here. I have an anchor to the soul, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is my forerunner. When this whole thing falls apart, that chain is just going to pull me up. Pull me on up. Pull me right on up. In the glory where I am in Christ. Is that your hope? And here's one of the ways you guys can know that it is. I'll give you a little bit. We'll go to our final point and close. Much more that could be said here. Here's how you know that it is. It's because the things I'm sharing with you are not bizarre. They are not weird. They are not fringe. These are things that your soul can grasp. When the soul has been illuminated by the grace of God, the propositions of biblical truth, which are the promises of God, they make sense to us. I may not be able to explain them all. That's my job as a teacher to do, but I certainly believe them. I certain, certainly believe that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came from heaven, assumed my nature, went back again and sent the Holy Ghost to come get me that where he is, I may be also. I actually believe that. Do you believe that? I actually believe I'm there right now. I've been thinking this way for a long time. Part of my confidence when I'm in trouble is to really know that I'm not here. It just looked like I'm here. I'm not here. I'm in glory. That'll come home to you in a minute. And when we're putting away our brothers and sisters who are often struggling with, with uh, life-threatening propositions from the doctor. Their joy is that they're already in glory in Christ. They will frequently say, Lord, just open up the door and let me in. I'm ready to go. We hear it. I'm ready to go. And the testimonies of the saints will be so frequently. I can see the glory of God. I can hear the angels calling. Say what you will. What a hope in the time in which you and I are in the valley of the shadow of death. Heaven opens up. Jesus seated at the right hand of God, standing ready to bring you into glory. You can play church all you want to, but if this world lasts any time longer, you're going to draw near to the grave and you're going to want Jesus to keep you. Our covering speaks to us as a notice of truth. Is that what our proposition says? And then subpoint C, this is something I need to teach for our close out. It does not notice confusion. The notice is not confusion. Deuteronomy 22, 5. This is an old text. I've been teaching this a long time. You need to get it. Here it is. The woman 
shall not wear that which pertains to the man. There it is. There it is. See, you see how God had to actually train those Egyptians in heart who were called to be Jews to understand until their mind is renewed, they have the propensity to actually become confused and think that they're a boy. Did y'all get what I just stated? This is extremely important for you to get. This is extremely, see, Christians are ignorant today. This is why so many of us are swallowed up by this Babylonian system because we're not really listening to God as we ought to. And then we're afraid because the enemy has actually made them the majority. But remember what God told Israel in Deuteronomy 7? I know you don't, but I'm going to remind you anyway. He said, I didn't choose you because you were many. And I didn't choose you because you were mighty. I didn't choose you because you were powerful. Because you weren't any of those things. I chose you because I loved you. And I loved you in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thus I called you to myself to be a peculiar people unto me. Right. So what the people of God have to know is your dignity is not in the approval of the majority of this secular system, but in the Lord God Almighty all by himself. If you think my doctrine is strange, it's because you got the wrong garments on. And the reason why is my doctrine is my garment. Right? Through thy precepts do I get understanding. It's God's word that clothes me. It's Christ who is my covering, who is also my doctrine, my education, my teaching, my counselor, my instructor, my paraclete. He's the one that clothes me and clothes you too if you're a child of the living God. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of Christ. There's none like Jesus. He's altogether lovely. And I love his conversation, sweet, sweet words that comfort the soul, rebuke that corrects a brother. And the clothes that Christ puts on us are never too tight, never too loose. Just right for us to continue running the race. They don't make us tired. They give us grace and strength to keep our journey going. Am I making some sense? We don't get too hot in his garments and we don't get too cold. It's just right in the garments that Jesus uses to clothe their naked soul. So the Deuteronomy author is extremely, extremely clear. The woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. You see how we didn't take in this verse and just thrown it away in my generation. This is why I, it's amazing to me how some people will say to me, well, why, why do you think your government in this world system is actually opposing Christians? Well, look at the Bible. It's God's word that it's opposing we're dealing with two systems in our world. The devil is seeking to undo and reverse everything that the word of God has sought to do in civilizing cultures and, br- and grounding them into the reality of who God is and who they are in God. See, if they weren't messing with scripture and they were doing some other kind of weird, crazy thing, I could get with that. But everything they're doing is diabolically opposite of what the word of God is saying. Now we got to say something about it. Am I making some sense? Right. That's where we are today because their goal is to take the word of God and get rid of it. Cast his cords from us. Loose his bonds from he. We will not have God to rule over us. That's what my right now. My nation is engaged in a worldwide agenda of unhinging humanity 
from the discipline of the word of God so that they can be trapped and controlled and transformed by a whole nother system. Am I making sense? No more Ten Commandments in that White House. No more prayer in the schools. No more Bible reading. No more teaching the word of God. And it is the light of the world. Am I making sense? Yeah, this is easy. This is easy for those of us who have traversed our country for the last 50 years. We can see it happen. Can we see it, Big Mac? Clear as day. And that men and women can't see it. It's a huge problem to me, particularly professing Christians. Huge problem. It means to me that they're not wearing the garment with the fringes. Listen, the garment is Christ covering. The fringes are the coextensive signal to you to be preoccupied with God's care to cover you. It's a reminder that God cares. We could go into some, again, some of the mechanistic practices of the Jewish culture around that. We could. They have what are called prayer shawls with, with, these, uh, uh, um, with these fringes on them, and they use them to remind themselves of Torah. The Catholic Church uses the rosary beads. The, uh, the uh, Muslims do too. They engage in a lot of, of the externalities, but it's empty because it's not pointing to the one who is the substance and totality thereof. That's why Paul warned them in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. He says, I will grant that my Jewish brethren have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For going about to establish their own righteousness, they have rejected the righteousness of God in Christ. So they have a form of godliness. They look good, but the Spirit... It's not present. And the sad reality is that all these kinds of false religions, which we learned last week, week to stone, did we not? We rejected it. We stoned it. We will not work for our salvation. We will rest in the merits of Jesus. Christ is our Sabbath, right? By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. It is not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's by his mercy that he saves you. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's submission to the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was hung high and wide and died for our sins and rose again for our justification. Christ is our righteousness. Right. And if you're not able to talk like that, you will be hoodwinked by the ongoing, unending propaganda and mind control of our present secular system. It's unhinging people everywhere. And the next level is right around the corner. And it's going to go from bad to worse. The next level is right around the corner. And the only way you're going to escape it is to be warned by the Lord and grounded in Christ. Whosoever that does not love God will be taken by that whore. Because it always gets you at the level of your lust. The enemy works two ways. I'm almost done here. He works by causing you to fear. Here it is again. Fear, fear, fear. And then he works by causing you to lust. Am I making some sense? Sure. He knows you well. He knows us all well. That's why for the righteous, they love to persecute us. That's why they persecute whistleblowers. That's why they persecute canaries. Because they want you to shut your mouth so they can continue to manipulate you. And the most 
bizarre thing is the Stockholm Syndrome of men and women that are in love with a government that continues to take away from them every freedom and every right. They're messing with your head right now as we speak. You're going to always be challenged in your allegiance if you don't have as the hierarchy of your governance the word of the living God. If Christ is not maximal in your life, you will be halting between two opinions. This is true. Final point. Let me go ahead on and close it. I'm overdue. I'm looking up. I see. Our call is to do what? Remember. Do y'all see that? Our call is to remember. Verse 39, A and B. I love this. It shall be upon you in order that you may look upon it. Do you see it? And remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. I'm going to deal with the last part in our fourth sub point. Sub point A under point number three, our call is to remember by what? Looking upon it. Looking upon it. Constantly looking upon the word of the living God. Constantly fixing your gaze upon the truth of scripture. Constantly looking into the face of the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 3.18. We all with open face. We all with the veil removed. The veil is removed. When the veil is removed, God allows you to see him in his glory. He allows you to see Christ in the scriptures. He allows you to enjoy the gospel. He, he, he allows you to affirm every day that Jesus is lovely to you. Jesus is worthy of your total devotion. We behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. I am absolutely convinced that the saving glory of the Lord is a person. His name is Jesus. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the revelation of the invisible God. He is the totality of God's revelation in Torah. Torah spoke of him. He is the essence of it. He has fulfilled it and he has granted us the righteousness of that demand to make us sons and daughters of God as well. And the practice for us is not the practice of fringes or tassels, but it's the practice of the word of God that we set our eyes on every day when we read it, when we hear it preached, when it's sung, when it's laid out in all the beauty of worshipers toward the one true and living God. Am I making some sense? So when we hear the word of God, it reminds us of who I am in Christ. And it also becomes an anchor to my soul because my sinful nature will drift into evil if God doesn't keep me. There must be a grander, more compelling glory that keeps you from the glory of the world. You must have a greater, more compelling glory that stops you from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. There must be a glory that outshines that carnal glory or you will be swallowed up by the glory of this world. It is really true. It is really true. If you don't hunger for that glory, the glory of the world will get you and you will dress like it. You will talk like it. You will act like it and you will follow it. I love the way John put it in first John chapter one, verse one. Listen to it, saints. You got to get involved. And that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. I told you, you got to hear first. 
which we have seen. I told you, you got to have an eye gate. We heard it. We saw it with our own eyes. We looked upon it and our hands have handled of the word of life. You got to get in there. You got to touch him. You got to hold him. You got to grab a hold of him. You got to have a visceral relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be intellectual. It can't be merely propositional. It's got to be at the heart level. Christ in you and you in Christ. He holds your hand. You hold his hand. You walk with him. He walks with you. He keeps you. You keep him. His word is spitted in your lips. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in your heart in hymns and songs and in spiritual songs, making melody unto the Lord. Let everybody know I sing the song of Zion. Jesus is my savior. I'm headed to glory. If you ask me what my joy is, there it is. There it is to look upon, to engage and to practice its lessons. Is that true? And finally, to avoid deceptive advertisement. To avoid deceptive advertisement. Done here. Go back to our text. I'm going to show you and close out right here. A whole lot of Christians are engaging in deceptive advertisement. Look at what he says. 38 and 39. Then I'm going to just read uh, 39 and 40. I'm going to read 41 as a closing statement. It shall be unto you for a fringe, a tassel, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and that you seek not after your own heart. This is what I told you in the beginning. The, the, The idolatry that's killing Christians is they wake up with the assertion they can seek their own heart. They don't seek the Lord. Did you hear what I just said? I feel you right on your way to hell. Feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are so fleeting. Nothing but the word of God is really worth believing. What does God's word say over how I feel? See, you can be your own treason. You can be your own traitor. You can rise up and put your own self in chains and be dragged to the slave ship of the secular world system. You can be the one that gives your soul over to false advertisement. Yes. You got to work on this, saints. You got to work on this. I'm sorry. See, the enemy knows that all he needs you to do is just not spend time with Jesus. Don't spend time with Jesus. Don't spend, don't buy that lie that preacher is telling you. You need him every hour. You need him. You need him every day. You need him every moment. Don't listen to that preacher. Because every second and every hour and every day and every week that Jesus is void in your life, the enemy is already there. Speaking to you subterranally at the emotional level, giving you a, a dose of pride and arrogance and self-confidence and setting you up to fall. That's what he's doing to your soul right now. He loves creating idols out of men. If you're not in Christ and you've got a glory, it's an idol. Did you hear what I just said? You're an idolater. Listen to what he says. And it shall be unto you a tassel that you may look upon it. And remember, 
the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which you use. You use your heart, you use your eyes to go a whoring from God. Is that plain? Is that plain, church? Is it plain? The word of the Lord is right. All his works are done in true. You've been testified to again by the word of the Lord. May God bless you.